Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. It's very good to see all of you. I do remember that time that I came up to my notes and they were splattered with some of the communion juice as Pastor Nathan shared. I thought perhaps he just wanted me to keep Christ's blood in mind while I preached. <laughs> the title of the sermon is Light Momentary Afflictions. I've been preaching a few sermons about our bodies breaking down as we get older, and this will be the third and final one. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this word. Father, we thank you for your word and the tremendous encouragement it gives us. Sometimes I think about these promises and I honestly feel inadequate to convey well enough how wonderful they are, Lord. And so I ask through any of my weaknesses and inadequacies that Christ could still be exalted and that your word could still be planted deeply in people's hearts to give each of us the truths that we need to consider when we suffer or when our bodies break down, something all of us experience. Think about the children, and it might be far from their minds, but it, it, it comes for them too. We live in a sinful, fallen world. One of the results of that sin is, is death. And so keep the children attentive as well, Lord. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to go forth and do that work in each person's heart that only he can do. And just use me as your vessel, Lord. Remove me even in a sense to, to, so that you would be the one to speak to your people. Bring to mind the things I should say and restrain me from anything, even if it's in my notes, that I shouldn't say. Do thank you for this time and for each person that you brought here, Lord. It's a, it's a wonderful encouragement to me that you knew who would be here as I labored in your word over the week, uh, regularly praying for each person who, who um, would be present, that you knew what they needed to hear, Lord, and deliver that to them. And we thank you for all this and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. If you're new, I spent a few weeks, I have uh, some lower back issues, and uh, maybe once or twice per year, I'll spend two or three days in bed, and then I'm usually fine, but recently, I spent about four weeks in bed, uh, I had some sciatic issues, it was a terrible radiating pain that went down my leg, and I spent most of my time on my back, and I thought during that time, when I had uh, you know, so much time to think and reflect, that God was sharing some things with me, some wonderful truths, and as I recorded them, I thought of passing them along to the church because your bodies break down too, and I hope that you could be encouraged by the things that I felt the Lord was teaching me. So this will be the third and final message on this little brief series about our bodies breaking down. The first sermon was on Ecclesiastes 12, where Solomon describes old age in that very um, poetic way, and then we started looking at Second Second Corinthians 4, which is where we'll be this morning, and these are the verses that came to mind the most for me. I thought about these uh, very, very frequently. Before I look at them, I want to ask a quick question. Did any of you listen to the comedian Brian Regan? Have any of you heard of Brian Regan before? I'm seeing some heads nodding. Okay. Uh, but not a whole lot of you. So some of you are missing out considerably, okay? You might, he's, a, uh, we, he's a comedian. He is secular, but he's clean. We've enjoyed him. We've seen him in, in person. And I'm mentioning him because he has a joke about doctors and how rude doctors are. Because when doctors walk into the room, if they, if, after possibly introducing themselves, what is typically the first question that they ask? What seems to be the problem? As though maybe there's no problem and you're just imagining it. And so doctors would be minimizing your suffering and acting like perhaps you're, you're not really going through anything significant. And along with when I think about these, jo- these verses, I also happen to think about that joke 
because I, I somewhat feel like Paul does that in these verses. So let's go ahead and read them, and you look and see, or tell me whether you think Paul is minimizing your suffering. Verse 16, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction. So in other words, what's he saying? What seems to be the problem, right? It's light, it's momentary, not a big deal, it's not that bad. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So did you catch what sounds like Paul is minimizing your suffering? You might be offended a little bit, right? He just said that whatever you experience, no matter how terrible or even excruciating it might be, it is still a light momentary affliction. And this brings us to lesson one. Every trial is a light momentary affliction. We'll get to part two toward the end of the sermon. We're actually going to go through lesson two and then come back to part one. Every trial is a light momentary affliction. Could you imagine saying this to someone? If they're suffering, especially if they're suffering terribly, telling them that what they're experiencing is a light momentary affliction. Sometimes people have come to me and they've wanted to know what they should say to someone who's suffering. I would tell them, don't say it's a light momentary affliction. Or in other words, don't minimize it. Don't, don't make them feel like what they're going through is so bad. And it begs the question then, how could Paul say this? We're going to answer that. We're going to understand from these verses how every trial can be viewed as a light momentary affliction because this isn't me saying this to someone. It's not you or it's not a poor counselor. It's not an oblivious person. It's not an insensitive person that said this. It's not some ignorant person. It's not someone offering terrible cliches or, or being offensive to people. Who is it who said that all trials are light momentary afflictions? You could say Paul or you could say God through the apostle Paul. And so how is it that he can label trials this way? Well, one, one suspicion you might have is that maybe the trials aren't that bad. Maybe Paul says they're light momentary afflictions because they're really pretty light and pretty momentary. Or in other words, maybe he says they're light momentary afflictions because they aren't that bad. Maybe he isn't talking about terrible suffering on this side of heaven. Maybe he isn't familiar with some of the excruciating things we've endured, and that's not what he has in view here. Do me a favor, look at verse 8. Back up a little bit. He says, We are afflicted in every way. So they are suffering every way you can imagine. He says, But we're not crushed. He says, We're perplexed. We're confused. It's that difficult or painful that it leaves them confused. But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted. And this would be terrible persecution that they're experiencing, excruciating suffering. And he says, But we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Verse 10, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live, notice this, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So they're living on the verge of death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. So they're that close to death that they could say that death is at work in them. I mean, that's close, but life is in you. So, does it, so Paul is talking about terrible trials. Paul was a man who knew trials better than most of us can imagine. If I had more time in the sermon, we could have looked at that passage where Paul lists everything that he suffered. While some of it is emotional, 
or relational as, he, as he's concerned for churches. Most of it is physical. You wonder how one man could endure as much as he did, and he could still say that it was light and it was momentary. Also, Paul re- repeatedly uses the words us or we because he's referring to his companions because basically to be with Paul was to what? If you're like, if Paul invites you to travel with him, he's inviting you to suffer, essentially. To be with Paul is to sign up to experience terrible suffering and, and uh, unbelievably difficult trials at times. And so again, the obvious question is, how could terrible suffering be described this way? We're going to hopefully answer that in the rest of the sermon. Go ahead and look at verse 16. Paul says, so we, don't, we do not lose heart. And just pause right there. And this brings us to lesson two. Light momentary afflictions, part one, are discouraging. We're on lesson two. We'll come back to lesson one. Light momentary afflictions are discouraging, part one. There are many ways to suffer. We can suffer mentally. We can suffer emotionally. We can suffer spiritually. But because Paul says our outer self, and we know from the previous sermon, outer self is referring to our physical body, he's referring to our outer self or physical body wasting away, we know the kind of suffering he's talking about, primarily physical. Now, not to minimize other kinds of suffering, but there is something very unique about physical suffering. We talked about this last week. On the first day, God allowed Job to take away everything from him, but God told Satan Did I say that correctly? I'm sorry. On the first day, God allowed Satan to take everything from Job, but God told Satan, you may not touch him physically. So on the second day, uh, Satan comes back, and God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Despite all the terrible things that you've done to him, he still has not cursed me. And what did Satan say? Well, that's just because he hasn't suffered physically. And as soon as you afflict him physically, or you touch his body, which is something up to this point that has been untouched, He's going to curse you to your face because Satan knew that there's something very unique and difficult about physical suffering, especially when it's chronic. Now, I want to ask you to believe me, the same request that I made last week. I don't think that what I went through was worse than or even approaches what some other people uh, go through. But with that said, one of the blessings, which I don't think I mentioned last week, was I do think that what I experienced for those weeks allows me to be a better pastor. Because anything that God allows you to experience that allows you to better understand what other people experience, I think can make you a better pastor or better counselor. And now if people were to come to me and they were to, to experience chronic suffering, I'll have a little better window into that than I did before those previous weeks. Now, if Paul, if someone came to me and they had that suffering, I would tell them, I would agree with them. I would say this does sound terrible, what you're experiencing. I I do believe that it is as bad as you're describing. And like Paul said, what is the temptation? You see it at the beginning of the verse. To lose heart. It's a a very fitting way to describe. I always appreciate how wonderfully God looks into our situations and and identifies with us. I mean, God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He learned obedience through what he suffered. So God can speak to us through Scripture, familiar with what we're going through, and he says very clearly how tempting it is to lose heart when we suffer physically. It can be very discouraging. It can be even depressing. People can begin to despair. And I tend to think one of the reasons is that if you're going through something emotionally or even mentally, 
there's typically an expectation that it's going to improve. I know it's cliche, but you expect a light at the end of the tunnel. You believe that the next day or next week or next month is going to be better, that time is going to, you know, heal all wounds, we say. Well, the problem with physical suffering is if it's chronic and your body is wasting away, you don't expect tomorrow to be better. You possibly don't expect next week or next month to be better. And so you can start to think what? If tomorrow is going to feel like today, then I don't want to experience tomorrow. And the most extreme form of this that happens with people is they think that the only way to end their suffering is to prevent tomorrow from coming. And I'm not defending or minimizing suicide, but that's what happens often when you see people who have committed suicide. It can be because of the physical suffering that they just wanted to bring to an end. Because they thought, if I have to continue going through what I'm going through right now, then I don't even want to live. Now, that's the discouraging part. So now for the encouragement. If you look back at the verse, Paul says that our outer self is wasting away. We're going through all of this physically, this breakdown. But believe it or not, this causes or can cause some very wonderful things for us. Let me say this again clearly. When our bodies are breaking down or we're going through physical suffering— and it's not my opinion, it's what Paul says in these verses, it can lead to some very wonderful things in our lives, and this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Light momentary afflictions can give us eternal perspectives. Light momentary afflictions can give us eternal perspectives. The words wasting away in that verse, those are the words that came to mind for me. I've, I've, the doctor did, ran all these blood tests, and everything came back and looked very good. I, so I, God has allowed me to remain sharp mentally. In other respects, as I, I felt, I'm, it seems the test revealed I'm very healthy in all these ways, except physically, I just really kind of felt like my body was wasting away. That's what these, these verses describe very well. I identified with them. Now, because I talked about them in last week's sermon, I don't want to focus on that too much again, but I do think it's important to consider one of the wonderful things that can happen when our bodies waste away. It can encourage us to remember that our bodies are temporary. They're tense. They're not our homes. And it is good to be reminded of that. When you're young, even though you know you're not going to live forever, you sort of think you're going to live forever. You're young, and you know you're going to die, but you sort of think that you're never going to die. It's just because it's so far off. You start to think about death, which is a very important thing to think about, when your body starts to break down. You're given this tremendous reminder that this life is not our home, and it causes you to focus, or it can cause you to focus on the next life versus focusing on this life. And one of the other wonderful things I realized is that I've never in my life desired my glorified body more than those four weeks in bed. <laughs> and so there is never any time that we long for the next life and the glorified body of the next life more than when this physical body is breaking down. And it might not even be too much to say that if this, these physical bodies didn't break down or didn't waste away or we didn't start experiencing um, some of that breakdown, we might not long for our glorified bodies. And do you think God wants us longing for them? Yes, definitely. It causes us to want them where there's no more aches and pains. There's no more disease. There's no more disability. There's no more degenerative disc disease. There's no more sciatica pain. 
There's no more cancer. There's no more Alzheimer's. There's no more dementia. There's nothing else breaking. All the tears are wiped away. But we long for that greatly only when the physical body is breaking down. Someone sent me an email this past week about the recent sermons, and they said, it is hard at times to realize that I can't do certain things. This body just can't work or won't work like it used to. We should look for the blessings and give thanks to God for those blessings. It is a good reminder that this body is just a shell that I live in here on earth, and someday I will have a new body and a new home to praise my Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorified body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, that was a really good point. As I read this, a point that I hadn't considered before, I was thinking that when we receive our glorified bodies, then we'll no longer suffer. But one of the other beautiful realities of our glorified bodies, I mean, if, if that was, that alone is tremendous, that there's no more physical suffering, but God gives us glorified bodies so that we can worship Christ for eternity. You will worship the Lord better with your glorified body than you do now in this sinful fallen one cloaked in flesh with the old man that remains, even for the regenerate person. So we will receive glorified bodies that allow us to worship Christ in a truer and fuller and greater way than we do at any time in this life. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, Philippians 3.21, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It is good to be reminded of our glorified bodies, and few things can remind us as much as our bodies wasting away. Now, one important point before we move on from this lesson. One of the blessings, one of the, uh, I don't know if I'd say blessings, or one reason it's so important if you preach or teach God's word to pour over your notes is to catch words that are inaccurate and that should be changed. And any individuals who preach from this pulpit always pour over their notes. And it's not just semantic. Words have meaning. It's important the things that we say, especially, especially when preaching. And I did not say that it does or it will. I deliberately, repeatedly said it can do these wonderful things for us. In other words, I said that the breakdown of our body can do these wonderful things, but it's not a guarantee that the breakdown of our body will do these wonderful things. And here's why I say that. For some people, when their bodies break down, guess what they never do? They never look up. They don't look to heaven. They don't think to the next life. They don't long for their eternal body. Their body is breaking down, and instead of looking up, they're just looking down. Instead of getting, you might say, better, they're getting bitter. They're resentful. They're despairing. They're frustrated. They're angry. They're wondering why other people have it so much better. And so I want to be really clear about this. There are some wonderful things that can happen when your body breaks down, but it's your choice whether those things happen or not. Because you can easily give yourself over to bitterness or resentment or self-pity. You can start to think how much better everyone else has it than you. You can become angry with God that he's allowed this to take place. You can think that you're so unfortunate or you're so unlucky. 
And so it's up to us that when our bodies are breaking down that we are choosing to think beyond this life and focus on what God has in store for us and how he wants to use this trial or suffering for our good and to get us to lift our eyes from this life to the next one. So I want to encourage you, when your body breaks down, let this be a wonderful time to develop an eternal perspective, to look to heaven, to long for it, and to crave the life that exists beyond this one. Now, I want you to notice something else wonderful that happens when our bodies waste away. Paul says our inner self. Now, if the outer self is our physical body, you know the inner self refers to the spirit. And while the outer body is wasting away, what's happening with the, with the inner self or the spirit? What does he say there? It's not a trick question. He says it's being renewed or strengthened day by day. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Light momentary afflictions, part three, strengthen our spirit. Light momentary afflictions strengthen our spirit. There's a beautiful contrast that I want to make sure we don't miss here. Our physical bodies are breaking down, but our spirits are being renewed or they're being strengthened day by day. So literally, it's like Paul is saying this to you, or God is saying this to you through Paul. What does it really matter if your physical body is breaking down as long as your spirit is being renewed and strengthened each day? What does it really matter if your physical body is wasting away as long as your spirit is getting stronger? Now, we don't like trials. None of us do, but this is one of the other places of many places in Scripture that discuss the wonderful benefit trials have for us and the great things that trials do that only trials can do in terms of strengthening and refining. And I want you to keep this in mind for this reason. Basically, physical suffering is discouraging and you need encouragement. Keep this in mind because physical suffering is discouraging and you need to remember how your spirit is being sanctified and strengthened and refined through the breakdown of your body. It's one of the main reasons that Paul could look and say that even terrible physical suffering is still only a light momentary affliction. This is why he could view it the way he did because he recognized the wonderful benefit that was happening spiritually for him. Look at verse 17 to see something else that light momentary afflictions do for us. For this light momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two, that part four, they increase our heavenly blessings. They increase our heavenly blessings. So eternal weight of glory, what does that mean exactly? Eternal weight of glory is, refer, is a biblical way to refer to our heavenly blessings or our heavenly rewards. Basically, it's a way to refer to what we're going to get to enjoy for eternity when this life comes to an end. And so interestingly, physical trials only serve to increase our eternal blessedness. Let me say that one more time. All the physical suffering or trials we experience only serve to increase our eternal blessedness. Our suffering feels very far from light and momentary, but when we consider the heavenly blessings it's producing for us, two wonderful things happen. As soon as your mind goes to the eternal blessedness awaiting for you, waiting for you, or the weight of glory that's being prepared because of your physical suffering, those light momentary afflictions look smaller. They can feel smaller. 
And the second thing, and this is particularly interesting, when you consider what light momentary afflictions are doing for you, you see them working for you versus against you, which is not how it feels. When your body's breaking down, my first sermon was when our bodies betray us. You don't think your body's working for you. You think it's working against you. I appreciate it. My sister-in-law, that's what she gets in my body's betraying me. Well, when you have this eternal perspective, then you see your trials preparing or doing what the verse says. It's not even my opinion. Preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond all comprehension. It's similar to what Paul said in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So for Paul, that future glory far outweighed the present suffering. It, it was all about proportion to him. It's all relative. I mean, here's an example. The, your light momentary afflictions, are they really light and momentary? It depends what they're being compared or contrast with. It's like if I, I could pick this up and I say, is this is this container of water big or is it small? You actually can't answer that unless you compare it with something else or contrast with something else. It's small compared to the church. It's big compared to this communion cup. So for Paul, it wasn't even really the size of his light momentary afflictions. They could be huge. It's just that the heavenly blessings are huger. So it's not really that the light momentary afflictions are insignificant or small or, or they don't hurt, or you're not really suffering. You are. <laughs> it does hurt. It is real. You're not imagining it. Your brain is sending pain signal. Your, I don't even know how it works. I just know you feel it really badly. You're not imagining it. And so Paul says, yeah, it's terrible. But when contrasted with the eternal blessings waiting for you, it's small, it's light, it's momentary, it's proportion. The glory is so much greater than the suffering. The trials are light because they're contrasted with the glory we receive. That's, it says, beyond all comparison. There is no comparison. The trials are momentary because Paul's contrasting them with eternity. He's weighing the present against the future. And who else must do that? We must. So we must look at what's taking place presently and it must be compared or it must be contrasted with the future. And if we do that, then suddenly even the very worst trials and suffering can be viewed as light and momentary. Look at verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When Paul says things that are seen, what's he referring to? Is this a trick question? He says things that are seen. What's he referring to? Yeah, this life, the physical world, everything that you see or feel or touch or taste that's around you. And what does he say about that? What does he say about the things that are seen? Or what does he say about the physical world? Your Bible might say transient, and then you say, what does transient mean? Well, it simply means temporal. So he says this physical world, world it's absolutely temporal. And then when Paul says the things that are unseen, what's he referring to? The spiritual world, heaven, and he says this is eternal. So he's contrasting. He's contrasting the physical temporal world we live in with the spiritual and eternal world that we will go to in the next life. And I read something interesting this week. Sometimes you hear something and you might disagree or have trouble 
understanding it at first, and then it makes sense, and suddenly it's, it's, it's uh, absolutely true, and even somewhat of a paradigm shift. And for me, A.W. Tozer said, the spiritual world is the only real world. And I thought about that. The spiritual world is the only real world. Why would he say that? This world seems real to us. It feels real to us. We can touch it. We taste things. This is the world we live in, that we interact in. We have physical bodies that break down. It seems completely real, but like Paul says here, this is the world that's disappearing. This is the world that is going away. It is not eternal. Unlike the spiritual world that is eternal, that is going to last, that will not pass away. Now, regarding the spiritual world, I want you to notice an interesting paradox in these verses. Paul says... Don't look at the things you can see. Look at the things you can't see. Just think about that for a moment. That's a paradox. Paul says, don't look at the things you can see. Look at the things you can't see. That doesn't make sense. Have you, would you ever say that to someone? Would you ever say, hey, I want you to go look at this thing you can't see? You can't, that's what it means. It's invisible. It's unseen. You would never say, hey, there's something invisible over there. I'd like you to go look at it. But that's what Paul says. Now, here's the question. How do you look at what's unseen? How do you see the invisible? By faith. That's what faith is. Faith is to see the invisible. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Or a simple way to say it, if someone said, what is faith? You could say, faith is seeing what you can't see. <laughs> And then they're going to look at you kind of confused. And you're going to say, faith is seeing the unseen. It is looking to the invisible. The great men and women of faith, I don't know if it's just me, you read through Hebrews 11, which is the record or the hall of the great men and women of faith, and I mean this as respectfully as I can say it, there's just a couple names you're surprised are in there, right? Am I the one that feels that way? <laughs> you're kind of going through, and it's like, yeah, I, I, get Abraham, I get these people are there, and Noah, yep. And then you're like, oh, I'm not even going to mention them. I don't want to, I don't want to offend them. What, well, it begs the question, well, why are they in there? So they're not in there for their, you know, tremendously moral, exemplary lives. They're in there for their faith. They're in there because they saw the invisible, that's how these people made it into Hebrews 11. And I'll share an interesting example from Scripture. Do you remember when Abraham and Lot parted ways? So here's the situation. God calls Abraham to leave his family behind. He compromises. One of the other encouraging things about the people of faith is that they compromised or sinned at times. They didn't have to be perfect. And Abraham brought Lot with him, something that many times I believe he regretted and wished that he had obeyed God, which is always the case when we disobey God. We end up with regret. And so God blesses them, though, and, and Abraham and Lot were not going to part ways, which is what God wanted, so it seemed, or they weren't going to do it intentionally, so it seems that God blesses them enough that they're forced to part ways because their herds are growing so much that they're competing for land, or the herdsmen, those in charge of the herds, Abraham's herdsmen are competing with Lot's herdsmen, and there's conflict developing. And so in a great instance in Scripture of deference or allowing someone else to have their way, Paul, Abraham says to Lot, you choose. You, why don't you just go wherever you would like, and if you go right, I will go left, and if you go left, I will go right. Genesis 13, 8, Abraham said, let there not be any strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We're kinsmen. The whole land is before us. Separate yourself. You go left, I'll go right, and then listen to this. 
Genesis 13, 10. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley that was well watered, and this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It says Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw. How did he look? He looked physically entirely. He was a carnal man. There was no question in his mind about the spiritual. There was no question in his mind about the invisible world or where it would be best for him to go spiritually. He just looked physically, and there was Sodom and the land around it. And he saw, because he wasn't looking at Sodom spiritually, a a very attractive and wonderful city. But here's the thing, and you don't learn this from Genesis 13, that at the same time that Lot was looking for a city, what was Abraham doing? He was also looking for a city. Hebrews 11.10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Lot looked physically for a city. Abraham was looking entirely spiritually for a city. He was, he was pursuing, trying to see the invisible city. Now, the things that happened, Abraham was nomadic. He was a pilgrim. He was an exile. He never had a home. And all the things that happened with the patriarchs, they happened as examples. 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15, for us to learn from. And so, see if this makes sense. In this life, you can have a home, but you shouldn't really have a home. You can live somewhere in this life, but you should definitely not see it as the place that you're going to live permanently, and you should never get too comfortable there. The examples that Abraham and Jacob set in their, in their nomadic lifestyles or their pilgrimages or, their, or their, them living, it says they lived as exiles, and you say, well, how are they exiles? They were exiles because they, they didn't reach their spiritual home on this side of heaven, and we are too. That's why there are epistles addressed to us as exiles, because we're not home. We need to be looking like Abraham did. I mean, we face that same choice. Are you looking physically like Lot for a city that's going to be destroyed, burned up by sulfur from heaven, or are you looking spiritually for the invisible city? Do you have that eternal perspective? And so you say, well, this is, did we take a detour? We didn't take a detour. Everything I just discussed completely applies to light momentary afflictions, and here is why. You have to develop the perspective that Abraham had. You must have that spiritual or eternal perspective where you're looking to the invisible, like the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, to be able to view trials as light momentary afflictions. You will never be able to view them as light momentary afflictions without that. And this brings us to the last part of part one. Every trial is a light momentary affliction when viewed in light of eternity when viewed in light of eternity or viewed with an eternal perspective. One of the things I've always liked about God or Scripture, the way God wrote Scripture, was the credibility that he gave to the authors. So I told you that when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, God had given Solomon tremendous credibility. Solomon could say that money doesn't make people happy. I couldn't say that. I don't have enough money. You could say, well, if you had some more. Well, Solomon had an absurd amount of money, so he could say it doesn't make people happy. Well, in a sense, God gave Paul the credibility to say that all physical suffering is light and momentary by allowing Paul to experience unimaginable physical suffering. If I, if I was to stand here and I say, I will tell you that all physical suffering is light and momentary. You could very reasonably look at me and say, how would you know? 
you have not suffered that much. And I, and I would say that I haven't, but Paul had, is my point. Paul had, and so he can say this. He knows what he's talking about. And when Paul viewed his suffering, this is what's interesting. It didn't have so much to do with how he viewed his suffering as it had to do with how he viewed his future. He knew that one day all of his suffering would be over and he would be able to enjoy his eternity. So it wasn't that his suffering wasn't severe. It was. I mean, at times, for us, almost unimaginable to experience what he did. But it's just the contrast that he was able to keep eternity in mind. And he wants us to develop that eternal perspective. Notice the repetition. I've said it so many times, you might be tired of me saying it. God repeats himself when we shouldn't miss something. And notice the repetition of the word eternal in verse 17. Light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Verse 18, toward the end, the things that are seen are unseen. The things that are unseen are eternal. Why the repetition of eternal? Paul is encouraging us to develop the eternal perspective he had that allows trials to be viewed as light and momentary. So when you read this and you say, how could Paul say that every trial is light and momentary? You say, by having an eternal perspective. As we suffer, it's easy to focus on the pain in the present that we're feeling, but we should focus on the joy in the future. Now, with an eternal view, our trials can seem light and momentary, but I want you to think about something else. If our trials can seem light or an eternal perspective allows our trials to seem light and momentary, then what does the absence of an eternal perspective cause? If an eternal perspective allows trials to be light and momentary, then the absence of an eternal perspective causes trials to seem what? Heavy, endless, excruciating, hopeless. Without an eternal perspective, literally, this is not an exaggeration. All you can see is the trial that is engulfing you. You have no choice but to be hopeless. You have no choice but to think there's nothing better for me. I can't see anything in the future. All I see when I look to next week or next month is more suffering. Nothing gets better. I I cannot imagine the despair that unbelievers would experience. I don't know why they don't experience more despair. Do me a favor. At the beginning of verse 18, look at the words, we look not to the things. That word for look, it's skapeia, which is a verb. The noun form is skapos, and the noun form means an end or a goal that one has in view. And the word skapos, or the word for a goal or an end, is only used one time in Scripture. In Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal or toward the skapos for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So basically, when Paul says to keep the end in view or to keep the goal in view, what's he basically saying? Have an eternal perspective. Look beyond this life. The goal or the end is finishing this life well to enter the next one. Now, I don't know about most of you, but I have always hated running. I have never been good at it. I don't have good endurance. I never ran anything more than longer than like 200 the 200 in in high school and then I went to college and had to run a few miles and realized that yes running is as bad as I've always thought that it is 
There are people who have said that they experience runner's highs, and I know that they are lying. <laughs> so if you run, you've got to admit it's very challenging and difficult. I'm trying not to think of the pain. I'm telling myself that my mind can go someplace else, but it never does. It's always very uncomfortable. And the reason I'm saying this is you're, I'm thinking when I'm running about the finish line, the end, the goal. And if you keep the finish line in mind, that's really the only way. I mean, that's how you have to run the Christian life, too. That's why the Christian life is so often compared with a race. John MacArthur said, endurance is based on one's ability to look beyond the physical to the spiritual, beyond the present to the future, and beyond the visible to the invisible. Believers must look past what is temporary, or which is to say, what, look past what we're experiencing right now, and look past what is perishing, such as our bodies and even this whole world. Look past that to the eternal. In other words, we must have an eternal perspective. And so when Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward that goal or that end or that skepos, he's talking about having this eternal perspective that allows every trial or every suffering to be light and momentary. Now, I want to conclude by taking you back to the beginning of the passage that we've been looking at. Look at the beginning of verse 16 with me. It says, we do not lose heart. Some of your Bibles say, so we do not lose heart. Raise your hand if your Bible begins, if verse 16 is therefore. So therefore, okay, so some, some verses there say therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, what do you do? You ask yourself what it's there for. And it's there because of what was written earlier. And so you say, well, Pastor Scott, you kind of, in covering these verses, you kind of jumped into a conclusion. A con- and I did, that's fair. You know, what about the context? Well, the problem is, if you start at the beginning of a chapter, you, you're, there's still context to that. And, if, and you say, well, what if you start at the beginning of the book? There's still context for that. I mean, unless you're going to cover the whole Bible. So you're always looking at a little, a little section and trying to provide context for it. And I wanted to conclude by giving you the context for these wonderful verses that we've been looking at or why they begin with so or why they begin with therefore. And the only way that you can understand what it's there for or why Paul says, to be absolutely clear about this, the only way to understand why Paul says we don't lose heart is to look at what he wrote earlier in verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And that is why we do not lose heart. That is why we are not discouraged or despairing no matter what we're suffering because we know that the Lord raised Jesus and he's going to raise us. Now, the truth of the resurrection, which is what the believer must hold to, the truth of the resurrection puts everything in perspective. It puts every trial in perspective. The truth of of our resurrection puts every difficulty or struggle, all of our suffering into perspective. And notice it says, with Jesus. We aren't just raised, although that would be or that is a wonderful blessing, we are raised to be with Jesus. The Father raises us like he raised his Son to be or brought into his presence, and this is the beautiful hope of our eternity. 
we have a glorious future with Christ the, this wonderful reality allows any suffering to be light and momentary and so when you're when you're feeling your body break down you're in the middle of something that you don't know if you can handle another day of it it doesn't feel like it could be any worse you're you're wondering how this could happen or why you and and you're just thinking all I want more than anything is, is for this to just go away your mind has and you're you're on the edge of despair you're on the edge of losing heart as verse 16 says you've got to back up to the truth of verse 14 to see why you do not lose heart and you do not lose heart because the father is going to raise you to be with his son now for those who are not in christ the sad reality if you're not in christ when you reach the end of your life your suffering hasn't begun if you're not in Christ when you reach the end of your life your suffering hasn't even started yet now for the believer who reaches the end of his or her life all suffering ends there is no more for us all of us are going to die and so I would ask you why would you die only to begin your suffering why would you choose that versus the glory that God offers you through Christ why would you choose suffering what is it that that would hold you back from embracing Christ a gift that's offered to you so freely the gift of salvation all it requires is that acknowledgement that you're a sinner and that Jesus died for those sins who, who couldn't do that who wouldn't do that who would deny that who would cling so much to their self-righteousness that they can't even acknowledge their sinfulness and need for a Savior I will say this for the person that that describes they enter an eternity of suffering that we cannot even fathom and so there's no excuse if you reject Christ his father will reject you if you reject Christ you will be rejected so if this reaches even one of you and sobers you to the reality of your eternal future or you have any questions I'd consider it a real privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you after service if you're tuning in online and you're listening to this and you have some questions about anything I said you're more than welcome to contact us pastor Nathan or myself would consider it a privilege to speak with you but I would just invite you to consider this life comes to an end for all of us you can feel your body breaking down and when you do what you're actually feeling is the consequence of sin your when your body breaks down what you're actually appreciating is the reality of Genesis 3. that is why there there's death because there was a fall your scripture's credibility is being shown to you and so don't run away from that understand that God has offered you salvation through his son Jesus Christ father we thank you for that otherwise we would have no hope we would have nothing to look forward to if we were atheists then it would be I suppose just an emptiness a blackness for all eternity but we know better we know that for those who are not in Christ it's eternal suffering that awaits them but for those of us in Christ it's resurrection with him and to receive as Philippians 321 said a glorified body like his with which we can worship you for all eternity so we thank you for the wonderful ways that the light momentary afflictions we experience can do wonderful things for us Lord and so when those light momentary afflictions feel like anything but that bring our mind to these verses and those promises that allow us to view it the way that they're described here Lord give us that eternal perspective that we need and we pray these things in Jesus name amen